if we're interested in the idea of the new man, a conception of man that is new, and we are because of some of the chronic trouble that we've been charting here over the years related to a new set of ideas replacing an old set, it might not occur to us to turn for that view to art, but there has been perhaps a shift in the way people acquire their understanding of man. The Encyclopedia Britannica now reports that, quote, in the traditional Western, Western thought up to the 20th century, the study of man has been regarded as a part of philosophy. The implication there being that the understanding of man has since been taken over by other, perhaps better qualified experts. At the same time, we learned that in the early 20th century, the artist enjoyed singular moral authority to promote the ideal of the new man. The poet Guillaume Apollinaire <coughs> celebrates Picasso as a new man, adding that for this new being, the world is as he newly represents it. First, what do I mean by the idea of the new man? Well, I took this theme from the title of the exhibition that we'll be seeing at the National Gallery of Canada this afternoon. That was entirely the origin of the topic. The 1930s, the making of the new man. And it will be interesting to see what the curators of the exhibition understand by the idea of the new man. And I'm pretty sure it won't have very much to do with the way we understand it. But let's leave that for, for later this afternoon. The idea of the new man is of interest to us because over the years at this conference, one of the things we've often talked about is precisely man. What is man? What is human life? What is the plight of the human being thrown into this world. Let me quickly try to fill in some of that discussion for the benefit of those who were not here in the past when we talked about this. In 2006, we looked at the 18th century and the rise of the modern, of the modern ethics as in Hume that sees judgments of good and bad as analogous to judgments of taste. As in, I find your view of life unpleasant the view that people have different dispositions to value things. This was the shift from the old language of good and bad, right and wrong, to the modern language of value. <coughs> and the old view, which had lasted at least some 1,500 years to that point, was that right and wrong are simply what helps and hinders human life as God created it. Now, Christians have lost that understanding of right and wrong, which probably still sounds odd even to those who have heard this before. So let me sketch it again. The concept of good is secondary to some model or picture of fulfilled life that the cultures of the ancient world, the Israelites, the Christians, possessed. Flourishing, which is so central to Aristotle's view of ethics, is a Hebrew concept before it is a Greek one. Psalm 92 reads, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. The existence of an image of flourishing, the shared acceptance of a human paradigm, is one of the main reasons 
why we can think of those ancient cultures as unified. Each culture's most crucial stories are tales of paragon human beings, man as he should be, and painting the same picture negatively should not be. Homer's Odysseus, Ruth, Esther, David, Nathan, Job in the Old Testament, and when we reach the Christian era, Christ and those who put Christ on and become a part of his body. Those of you who were here two years ago may recall the way the New Testament describes a flourishing person, a person doing the job of a human being, bearing the human fruit as the fig tree or the vine bears the fruit God designed it to bear. The language is Greek when Jesus says that Mary has done a good work, Talon Ergon, he is not saying it is a lovely thing that she's done. He is saying that Mary is bearing the fruit that makes her what God created her to become. And this is her perfection, her beauty. Mary is flourishing, flowering, an example to us all. In the Greek thought of the time, the thing that a tree must do to become what it is, is called the ergon of the tree. Of all the things that a tree does, what is not its proper work? How much of the tree's day is it busy with its ergon? Everything it does is its ergon, which fills every day of its life. Not so man. What this tells us is that the ergon, the works of the New Testament, are not good deeds that we occasionally perform for God's sake. They are constantly required of us so that we can be what we were really created to be. Required of us so that we be righteous. Which is to say, so that we go right in our life. So that we truly live. So that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Work in this sense, and virtue mean one and the same thing. Our work is our virtue, and our virtue is all that is conducive to bearing human fruit, the fruit of our kind. You may be thinking, well, that means bodily too. There is a way of managing the body too that is conducive to bearing human fruit. Health is analogous to virtue. Maintaining your health to the extent that you control this is virtue applied to the body. To eat what you should is what takes what it takes for you to flourish bodily. To eat as much as you should, likewise. That's covered by the classical and Christian virtue of temperance. In short, virtue is the condition of readiness to choose everything conducive to life, body and soul, and to reject everything conducive to its opposite. So virtue is not something we do to be righteous, in one sense, virtue constitutes life. Righteousness is life itself. We are called to life itself. This understanding of virtue as flourishing, as life itself, living in according with our true nature, as a palm lives in accord with its nature. In its biblical connection, this understanding in its biblical connection was all laid out for us in the Middle Ages by Thomas Aquinas. Modern Christianity since then, however, has changed on this. Modern Christianity has reconceived virtue 
as the occasional good act that is required of us to develop our righteous side. Christians in the modern era have thrown away the understanding of goodness that I've just laid out. Accordingly, we do not fully grasp what was intended by saying that the righteous are good. When Jesus said, Every good tree bears good fruit. That's clear enough. He had just asked the question, Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What he means is that good fruit is the proper fruit of the kind in question. A good tree, a good man, he is saying, is one that behaves as the kind that it was made to be. The good fruit of the fig tree is a fig, not a thistle. To be righteous is to live full out as what God made you to be, like the fig tree does. The good fruit of the man, there must be an image of that leafy tree, that fulfilled creature. So here again is the main point. Ethical good is secondary to an anthropology, a picture of perfected man. Good is a subordinate and not a primary concept. That's one of the facts that supports what Graham Hunter was saying the other day. <clears throat> if someone does not accept that the picture of perfected man that was given to you by your tradition is perfected man, your use of the words good and bad have no hold on them. Because those words are ultimately secondary to that picture that they reject. Good is what makes a man that kind of man. Bad is what makes him something else. As the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre has put it, to constitute a morality adequate to guide a human life, we need a scheme of the virtues which depends on further beliefs, beliefs about the true nature of man and his true end. Of course, we all know that we can define some good things by their self-evident goodness, kindness, for instance, but it's not really the case that we define all good things by a similar self-evident goodness. The <coughs> fundamental thing is the picture of righteousness, human perfection, the human being full-blown, which is given to us, whether we fully understand its goodness or not. This revealed picture of health is the life we are aiming at, the life in accord with our purpose on earth. And you know that the picture I'm talking about is the vine. When I said a moment ago that we are to live full out as what God made us to be, just as the fruit-bearing vine lives full out as the vine, I was speaking of the botanical vine, but I bet a few of you thought ahead to the vine you're looking at here, which is the other dimension of this botanical imagery that Christ so often employed. Christ is the telos the goal we are aiming at, the life to emulate. What we are given most fundamentally in the traditional ethics that lasted millennia is the paragon, the life we are aiming to emulate. And we learn what specifically is good and what is bad by reference to it. It is good, it is bad, which is it? Would it make us more or less like this being as he has revealed himself to us? And this is the moment to note, as some of you have no doubt already done, that the name given to the fulfilled human being in the Christian tradition is the new man. 
The new man is man as he properly is, man having become himself, man as God intended that he become. And he stands in contrast to the old man, man as he currently is, man in his unfulfilled, barely existing, which is to say, dead state. This is the cathedral in Albi in the south of France. You're looking toward the altar at what in English is called a rood screen, a lattice wall separating the choir, the area around the altar. Rood in Old English means cross or crucifix, and so you see a statue of the crucified Christ. But if you look lower down, you see two more figures. Who are they? Adam and Eve, the prototypical man and woman, commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply. That is two commands, by the way, not one. We are all descendants of both Adam and Eve. The story of the fall is our story, but that's not the end of our story, which even illiterate Christians of the Middle Ages knew simply by walking around a cathedral from the darker northern facade. They didn't have Bibles. Walking around the cathedral from the darker northern facade where the story of the creation and the fall was often shown in some detail. Walking around to the cathedral's south, sun-drenched side where we see portrayals of the life of Christ. The human story which is the journey to existence, the journey to life, is the journey to becoming like Christ. So Adam and Eve are the old creature that we must leave behind. The new creature, the new creation, is man remade, remade in the image of God. Christ is the new man. Now I thought the question I was going to ask you now was going to be a challenge to you, but Father Heyman told you the answer the other day. <laughs> entirely unexpectedly. But who remembers it? What does the Gospel of Luke call Adam? The Son of God. Christ is the new Adam. And that's what was always clear to medieval Christians in what you see here. The old man scarcely even exists. The old man is like a ghost, is dead, as Paul clarifies for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, I hope you'll forgive this recapitulation of views that we've often looked at here. I repeat it both for the benefits of new participants and because, however simple it is, it is hard to retain in minds that have been shaped by the modern outlook. Christianity has by and large departed from its own traditional understanding of man, of purpose and goodness and virtue and life, which have been separated one from another and reduced to smaller things. It's because we tend to think about right and wrong in a very modern way that we want what is good and what is bad to be the foundations of ethics and want philosophy to give us the arguments that prove that the good is good and the bad is bad so that we can fix things. Our mistake as children of the Enlightenment is to think of ethical philosophy as a kind of intellectual technology 
that can blow away the opposition like dynamite. Well, technology and life are two different things. Which really is stronger? We are a little deceived about where the power is found, about what power we need. Notice that the New Testament contains no arguments. No arguments that prove that the good is good and the bad is bad. Come back to our starting point, the conclusion I think we can draw is this. All through ancient history, at the very heart of ancient cultures, is an anthropology. An understanding of man, a picture of truthfulness, an understanding of the purpose or work or job of a human being. An example that shows us what a flourishing human being is. A born human being can altogether fail to exist if he does not understand how he is to grow. The way a seed fails to germinate if it doesn't poke its head above the earth. We can fail to exist by failing to do our work, by failing to understand what it is, by repudiating our work, our ergon, our virtue. The seed does not have this problem. For us, ignorance and deception is a problem. We're looking here at the new man, and I hope you don't mind that I've gone into this, not just to start with a Christian understanding of who the new man is, but to establish why an understanding of man is central to Christian ethics. <clears throat> there is an established tale that's often told about modern art. In short, it is that modern art destroyed art by turning against the great legacy of the past. In many ways, and this is the story transferred to culture of the fall of Rome to the barbarians. Rome represented a tradition that in 410 AD had lasted hundreds of years. In came the barbarian hordes who had established nothing to rival the accomplishments of Roman law and Greek drama, etc. But Rome fell, and in place of classical culture, you have the primitive standards of barbarism. The barbarian hordes of the 20th century don't give a rip about beauty, standards, decency, intelligibility, comfort. But they are in charge and drag the culture down to their level, depriving those who care about the legacy of the past of all the nourishment it afforded. That's the story. That story makes a lot of sense. But that is not enough of a recommendation. In the history of science, all of the theories that today constitute intellectual landfill in the waste heap built over the centuries, scientific theories that are today cute and laughable, all of those theories made sense. The scientists who entertained them were not fools, they were real scientists. Scientists are not the ones who got everything right, the others being just dithering idiots. They were all scientists, all attracted by explanatory power. The problem with the theories that are false, fated for the intellectual dump, is that they don't explain enough. They're very good with what they do explain. That's the attraction. But they don't explain enough. Indeed, they don't explain something that's quite crucial to the progress of science, which is to say something that we need to know, 
in order to make sense of the world, to make sense of the thing that we're trying to understand. Now, my view is that the tale that I've just repeated about art is going to be a liability in our understanding of the history that we've been tracing in this series of conferences if we are lured into it now that we've reached the 20th century. We are poised to go wrong if we buy into that fiction. Not that it doesn't have some explanatory merit, but it doesn't explain enough. And enough of what it is crucial to understand about the century in which we were born. And here's one primary thing that that story does not explain. Why? Why don't the barbarian hordes of the 20th century give a rip about beauty, standards, decency, intelligibility, comfort? The fall of Rome analogy that was so useful a moment ago is useless now. It doesn't fit the situation. Why did the barbarians replace classicism with their chaos? Because barbarism is all they knew. They knew nothing of Sophocles or Cicero. They brought what they had. But the barbarians of the 20th century were familiar with the culture they were replacing. They were its own sons and daughters. And what do people offer by way of explanation of this massive rejection of the tradition? In fact, there's not very much in the Y folder at all. The new artists are insane, is one offering. Are hateful, is another. They hate the tradition. And are talentless, is the last. All right, that's something. That's plausible. And again, these suggestions make sense. But at this point, we have to avoid making a mistake of understanding. Now, I've already laid out a Christian picture of man, which is the understanding of man. But what is at issue in understanding the 20th century is our understanding of man. And what we have to learn is what Aquinas knew. We may think we are good on man if we accept it, if we have accepted the picture that I just sketched from Aquinas, but there's something more that we have forgotten about the human heart. And it is a very problematic omission in our era. So let me explain what I want to do now, which I can put like this. I have two books here that I want to bring together. Uh, one was published only a couple of months ago. It's about the art of our period, and it's called Modernism, the Lure of Heresy, from Baudelaire to Beckett and Beyond, and was written by Peter Gay, Professor Emeritus of History at Yale University, and too many, quote, the country's preeminent cultural historian. The country being, of course, the United States. The other book was finished, insofar as it was finished, in 1273, it was written by Thomas Aquinas. It's the Summa Theologiae. I want to bring these two books together. One needs correcting by the other. My objective is to show you that you cannot understand human history, and our moment is the turn of the 20th century, if you do not have an, un an adequate understanding of human nature, of what man is, of the nature of the human heart, which God, after all, made. Without that, you cannot understand human history 
even if you are a celebrated historical culture. Now, I suspect you may be thinking as I say this, fine, he's going to take a Christian thinker, Aquinas, representing our outlook as Christians, and contrast that with the view of a secular academic. But I feel I can predict that the outlook you share is not the outlook of Aquinas. My hunch is that the story you would tell of the art of this period has far more to do with the mindset of the Yale professor than with the outlook of the Christian saint. My suspicion is that your thinking is likely to be much more aligned with this book than with this one. Let me show you how. The people who don't like modern art say that the tradition of art fell at the hands of people who completely rejected the values of the tradition. The people who love modern art say exactly the same thing. The defenders of the idea of the avant-garde have always enjoyed telling that story. The avant-garde artists rejected the values of the tradition and established new values in art. That is a dogma of our understanding of cultural history since 1900. Just notice that agreement between the traditionalist and the rebel. Peter Gay says that that view is mistaken. He says it at one point at least. He says that seeing modern artists as, quote, mavericks masked against the solid verities of time-honored high culture and usually Christian faith is one of our cherished fairy tales. Gay is calling that story told by the avant-garde a fable. But with what does he replace it? In fact, he himself doesn't have a better story to tell. As some of his critics have said, the major theme of his book is that modern artists were attracted by contradiction, what Gay calls the lure of heresy. Note the subtitle. One reviewer of his book writes, because Gay needs the lure of heresy to thematically structure his book, he often ends up not just reinforcing that character of modernists, but inflating it. He seems to think that this is a fairy tale, but he has no other story to tell. I believe that Gay is right to say that our account of modern art needs to be fixed, not entirely, of course. Something is right about it. But to tell the story of man correctly, you need a correct picture of man. And Gay does not have it any more than I suspect we tend to do, which is why we retail the same story of heretics as the avant-garde tell. We've been brainwashed by a much older modernity which began after the, the Middle Ages, thanks to which we find this fairy tale of rebel heretics quite plausible. I think it would be rather remarkable if the story that a Christian would tell about the history of art in the early 20th century were essentially the same story that a partisan of the avant-garde would tell. I wonder whether those stories could have much essential overlap at all essential overlap. We may have the tendency to roll all modern art from Picasso in 1907 to the monstrosities of our day into the same ball, but there be, may be some notable difference between the earlier and the later artists. The now established division between modernists and postmodernists may in fact be meaningful 
One possible line of division worth considering is that modernists believe in something while postmodernists are post-belief. In 1871, for example, a group of Belgian artists issued what it called, quote, a profession of faith. That's something that modernists often did. Postmodernists never do. A profession of faith just doesn't have enough irony in it for a postmodernist. <coughs> Artists of the early 20th century believe in something artistically. Their art represents a faith. What does the modern artist believe in? Now, I've already changed my terms, actually, and expanded my frame of reference from modern art to modernism, by which I mean the approach taken in the avant-garde of art, not just in painting and sculpture, but also in architecture, music, fiction, poetry, theater, dance, film, even photography. What happens in painting happens across the board. The modern element transforms the whole landscape of so-called high culture. Artists in every genre become believers in modernism. What is it that they believe in? The modernist believes in the new. In 1873, modernism has earlier roots than the turn of the 20th century and a few people who are seminal influence. The poet Arthur Rimbaud was one of them. Rimbaud writes, one must be absolutely modern. Before the First World War, Ezra Pound offers his fellow poets the slogan, make it new. A formula that Peter Gay notes firstly summed up the aspirations of more than one generation of modernists. The one thing that all modernists had indisputably in common, he tells us, was the conviction that the untried is markedly superior to the familiar, the rare to the ordinary, the experimental to the routine. What is new? This painting is called The Portuguese because its starting point was a Portuguese person of Brack's acquaintance. Is this a picture of that person? It's quite, quite right to say no. It doesn't look like a person. Since at least the Renaissance, the painting was understood to be a kind of vertical slice of what was called the cone of vision. So you, the eye is taking in the cone of light that's arriving through the uh, pupil, and a painting is a slice through, a plane sliced through that cone, and trimmed rectangularly. A painting was a window onto the world. Brack's picture is not any such thing. Notice the stenciled letters. What are they on? They aren't on anything in any depicted world. They are on this picture. An art historian writes, in 1911, Brock stenciled letters into a picture and thus significantly strengthened the idea, full of consequences for the future of art, that a picture was not a representation, but an autonomous object. A picture was not a window onto the world, not an image of something. It was a thing unto itself. A thing that you could write letters on. It was not a representation, but a thing itself. That is new. It does not matter to Brack what sort of outline a woman playing a guitar delivers. It does not matter whether we see the solidity of her body 
the subject of a woman playing a guitar delivers makes no demands on Brack. It is rather a grab bag of elements by which to assemble an image that is more an ensemble of specific forms than it is an evocation of any subject at all. You could say that really there is no subject. One scholar says that Cubist paintings were created as, quote, proof that figurative art creates an independent reality, and that this is the central proposition of modern art, says one scholar, interpreting modern art. Figurative art creates an independent reality, a reality that is independent of the world in which there are guitars and people to play them. This is another world than the one we live in. That idea, we are told, has had a profound effect not only on painting and sculpture, but also on the intellectual climate of the age. Looking back on his early work, Marcel Duchamp said, I wanted to get away from the physical aspect of painting. I was much more interested in recreating ideas in painting. For me, the title was very important. I was interested in getting away from the physicality of painting. For me, Courbet had introduced the physical emphasis in the 19th century. I was interested in ideas, not merely in visual products. I was endeavoring to establish myself as far as possible from pleasing and attractive physical things. Fernand Léger believed, he said, that plastic beauty in general is totally independent of sentimental, descriptive, or imitative values. Totally independent of sentimental, descriptive, or imitative values. Material beauty. Every object, picture, piece of architecture, or ornamental organization, he said, has a value in itself. It is strictly absolute and independent of anything it may happen to represent. No sentiment, no description, no imitation. That is new. Novelty calls forth another virtue in the eyes of the modernist. Being new is plainly being unique. By the same token, being unique is being individual. In 1857, Flaubert praised the poet Baudelaire, saying, you have found a way of rejuvenating romanticism. You resemble no one, which is the first of all qualities. For the modernist writes Gay, the true lover of art has an almost mystical faith in exceptional individuals, including no doubt himself. The modernist believes in individuality, in himself, his own way of doing things. Walt Whitman writes in Leaves of Grass that the poet is a seer. He is individual. He is complete in himself. A term we often use in this connection is subjectivity. Individuality, subjectivity, what's the diff? Well, there can be a difference in that subjectivity does not necessarily mean unique and different from the crowd, as individuality does. In philosophy, Kant said that all knowledge is subjective. It comes about thanks to the constitution of each individual mind, but in each individual mind it comes about in the same way, or it would not really be knowledge. Subjectivity in this sense means the channel through which the content of knowledge comes. It comes via the mind of an individual. That mind doesn't have to be different from every other mind. The modernist says the same thing of art, of true art. It comes via the mind of an individual. It is the individual's own experience that is crucial. The artist has to pay attention to himself, 
Gay says that subjective responses always remained of cardinal significance to the modernist. Take Baudelaire, in the 19th century he had asked, what is pure art according to the modern idea? It is to create a suggestive magic containing at the same time the object and the subject, the world external to the artist and the artist himself. If an assemblage of trees, mountains, rivers and houses, that is what we call a landscape, is beautiful, it is not beautiful by itself, but through me, my personal grace through the idea or the feeling I attach to it. Rimbaud had written that the first study of the man who wants to be a poet is the knowledge of himself, complete. How does he get this knowledge? He said, by a long, gigantic and rational disorder of all the senses, all forms of love, suffering and madness, he searches himself. He himself is the supreme scholar. Max Beckmann wrote, all objective spirits press toward self-representation. I search for this self, the I, in my life and in my art. Since we still do not know what this self really is, this self to which you and I give expression each in our way, we must push toward its discovery more and more deeply. For this self is the great veiled mystery of existence. Beckman was, he said, immersed in the problem of the individual. He asked, what are you? What, are, what am I? These are the questions that incessantly pursue and torment me. Consider the Norwegian artist Edvard Munch. Munch's vampire represents a motif he treated several times here in an oil painting. It's evident from Munch's diaries that like many of his works, this is a subject that had its basis in events of his life. Around this time he was invo involved with a young woman named Tulla Larsen, his almost fiancée, in his diary entry, he writes of himself in the third person. He sat with his arm around her body. Her head was so near to him. It seemed so remarkable to have her eyes, her mouth, her breasts so near to him. And he laid his head between her breasts. He felt her blood stream through her veins. He listened to the beat of her heart. He buried his face in her lap. She lowered her head down over him and he felt two warm burning lips on his neck. A shudder passed through his body, a shudder of voluptuousness, and he pressed her convulsively to him. Letters that Munch wrote to Tulla say a great deal about his general disposition. Quote, and then there is your face filled with desire, and that is what frightens me. That is the Sphinx's annihilating countenance, and that is where I see woman's most dangerous characteristics. Once you understand me, you will understand how impossible it was, the way you were with me, and how it would slowly kill me, were my loneliness taken away from me. Then you will understand that the marriage which still may come to pass must be the kind that I indicated. We must live as brother and sister. One scholar studied Monk's art comments, Munch would not submit to her sexual desire since that would destroy his artistic creativity. This was his great anxiety. Her refusal to agree with him aroused in him feelings that can only be described as panic, a phobia of unprecedented intensity in his phobia-filled life. As Munch himself noted in a manuscript, her happiness was dependent on my destruction. 
In the final event of their relationship, the details of which remain unclear, the ring finger of Monk's left hand lost two joints to a pistol shot. One, one evening when they were together, that was the upshot of their meeting. It's hard to think of the symbolism of that mishap as truly accidental. We are seeing Monk's own struggle with women, and as this work does, many of his works present men as victims of women, setting woman and man in the roles of predator and victim. Monk's most famous picture, The Scream, was painted after an experience on a bridge, likewise recorded in his diary. I was walking along a path with two friends. The sun was setting. Suddenly the sky turned blood red. I paused, feeling exhausted, and leaned on the fence. My friends walked on, and I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. It is the artist's own experience that delivers this subject matter, and it is not experience subjected to any yardstick of public relevance or right understanding. The artist does not assess these experiences against any standard by which they are put in perspective. It is the artist's sense of their importance that warrants their depiction in just this way. German artist Franz Marc writes, I'm trying to live very much by my feelings. My outward interest in the world is very restrained and cool. I place great trust in my instinct. In the 1920s, the Surrealist movement was started in Paris by the poet André Breton. In 1924, Breton defines Surrealism as, quote, pure psychic automatism by which Surrealist activity is intended to express, verbally, in writing or by other means, the real process of thought. Thought's dictation in the absence of all control exercised by the reason and outside all aesthetic or moral preoccupation. Surrealism rests in the belief in the superior reality of certain forms of association neglected heretofore, in the omnipotence of the dream, and in the disinterested play of thought. It tends definitely to do away with all other psychic mechanisms and to substitute itself for them in the solution of the principal problems of life. Kirchner notes that believing as we do in a new generation of those who create and those who enjoy, we call all young people together. As young people who carry the future with us, we want to wrest freedom for our actions and our lives from the older, more comfortably established forces we claim as our own. Everyone who reproduces directly and without falsification, whatever it is that drives him to create. So Kirchner has just said, we want to wrest freedom for our actions, freedom from the established forces. The modernist believes in freedom. Freedom to do what? In its profession of faith, that group of Belgian artists I mentioned earlier declared that they represented a new art that identified its character of modernity with, quote, its absolute freedom from directions and tendencies. They wanted freedom from the demands that had been placed on art by their masters in the academy and by the public. They were, they said, standing against the reactionary coalitions. We want free art. That is why we fight to the death those who want it enslaved. Mondrian described his work as a liberation from the oppression of the past. 
you can see that this is continuous with their faith in the new, their faith in their own judgment. To any suggestion that began with the words, art has to, the answer of the modernist was going to be, says who. Their instincts about what, mar what art must do were going to be better than those of their teachers. So freedom extends not just to the style of art, but also to its content. They claimed complete freedom to choose any subject matter. Baudelaire had said, all subjects are equally good or bad according to the manner in which they are treated. Vasily Kandinsky spoke of the black hand with which the established culture choked any evolution in art. The tools of the culture are fear of the clear path. Fear of freedom, which is Philistinism. He said, people regard each new value with hostility. Indeed, they seek to fight it with ridicule and slander. The human being who carries the value is pictured as ridiculous and dishonest. The new value is laughed at and abused. That is the misery of life. The joy of life is the irresistible, constant victory of the new value. This victory proceeds sl slowly. The new value conquers quite gradually. And when it becomes <coughs> undoubtable in many eyes, this value which was absolutely necessary today will be turned into a wall, a wall which is erected against tomorrow. The solution then is only temporary. The re revolution of modern art will become academic dogma. Would Kandinsky have been surprised to find abstraction being taught in universities as it was when I went briefly to art school in 1974. The changing of the new value, the fruit of freedom into a petrified form, a wall against freedom, said Kandinsky, is only to be expected. It's no surprise that the word he uses for this turnover of values is evolution. Quote, the whole evolution the inner development and the outer culture is a shifting of the barriers that are constantly created from new values that have overthrown the old barriers. Obvious that the new value is not the most important, but rather the spirit which has revealed itself in this value, he said, and further the freedom necessary for the revelations. So don't look for anything absolute in these new forms, he's saying. The form is always bound to its time, is relative, I'm quoting him, since it is nothing more than the means necessary today. The form is only an expression of the content, and the content is different with different artists. It is then clear that there can be many different forms at the same time which are equally good. The spirit of the individual artist is mirrored in the form. The form bears the stamp of the personality, end quote. Kandinsky has just made the same trip as Kirchner, moving from freedom to the individuality of the artist, which is seen as a well of nourishment, the nourishment that we need now, which the individual artist can find if he is free of constraint. The modernist believes in the low, the crude, the common. He replaces the high with the low, the beautiful with the ugly, the exceptional with the common. This is called The Large Bathers, under the influence of this picture, finished in 1906. Spanish artist Pablo Picasso began to work on a painting that he wanted to call Brothel at Avignon, 
but that one of his friends renamed the Demoiselles d'Avignon, the young ladies of Avignon, a problematic renaming to say the least. Those who saw this picture at the time were astonished and perplexed not only by the arbitrary disruption in the right-hand part of the picture of the continuity that had always united an image, but also by the defiant unloveliness which made it plain that the traditional beauties of art, the appeal of the subject, and the credibility of its imitation were now to Picasso finally irrelevant. What a loss to French art, a Russian collector said. Picasso's friend Brock, another cubist, told him, Listen, in spite of your explanations, your painting looks as if you wanted to make us eat straw or drink gasoline and spit fire. The German artist Otto Dix, born in 1891, was apparently an impressionist at first, but he tried various ways of painting until he arrived at what some have called a nightmarish vision of contemporary social reality. This is Dix's own son. The movement to which Dix belonged was called New Objectivity. Dix said very little about his work or art, but another artist in the same movement, Max Beckmann, explained the term New Objectivity. He said, I believe that essentially I love painting so much because it forces me to be objective. There is nothing I hate more than sentimentality. I have to experience all of life's depths. Dix said, that's why I volunteered for war. Notice the cigarettes, the pack of camels. Here they are again. The specific pleasure of American cigarettes. Not a universal good, but the common pleasure of our present lives. Beckman writes, the stronger my determination grows to grasp the unutterable things of this world, the deeper and more powerful is the emotion burning inside me about our existence. The tighter I keep my mouth shut, and the harder I try to capture the terrible, thrilling monster of life's vitality. The Great War has now dragged to a miserable end, he said, but it hasn't changed my ideas about life in the least. It has only confirmed them. We are on our way to very difficult times, but we must be a part of all the misery that is coming. doesn't mean we should create it. He means we have to surrender our heart and our nerves. We must abandon ourselves to the horrible cries of pain of a deluded people. Quote, actually, it's stupid to love humanity, he said. Nothing but a heap of egoism, and we are a part of it too. But I love it anyway. I love its meanness, its banality, its dullness, its cheap contentment, and its oh-so-very-rare heroism. But in spite of this, every single person is a unique event, as if he had just fallen from Orion. And isn't the city the best place to experience this? They say that the air of the country is cleaner, and that there are fewer temptations. But I believe that dirt is the same wherever you are. Farmers and landscapes are all very beautiful and occasionally even refreshing, but the great orchestra of humanity is still in the city. During the Second World War, Francis Picabia paints some unusual pictures. He begins to paint with imagery out of the girly magazines that were increasingly available. 
The modernist also believes in forms, not pictures, objects, stories, etc. In his early years, Cezanne had exhibited with the Impressionists, but what is different about this picture compared to, say, this one, is that Monet is interested, Monet, in the texture of the grass, for instance, while Cezanne is not. Cezanne is interested in the texture of the overall image, the work, the pattern of paint. We see a kind of pattern of forms. The brush strokes are not differentiated to mark the textures of houses versus trees versus mountains. Same brush stroke used for everything, unifying the picture. Here, as much as we're seeing the mountain, we're seeing the paint on the surface. And to some extent, we're losing certain aspects of the mountain, its texture, its material, its solidity, its distance. The forms are present in everything we see. It is these forms that matter. <coughs> Picasso said, many think that cubism is an experiment intended to get us to a new style that will itself deliver results. Those who think that way have not understood it. Cubism is not either a seed or a fetus, but an art dealing primarily with forms. And when a form is realized, it is there to live its own life. Cubism has kept itself within the limits and limitations of painting, never pretending to go beyond it. We have introduced into painting objects and forms that were formerly ignored. Franz Marc was born in 1880 in Munich. He died in 1916 in the German army at Verdun. Marc said that my instincts so far have not guided me too badly on the whole, even though my paintings are not pure. I especially mean the instinct that led me away from people to a feeling for animality, for the pure beasts. He wanted his painting to be pure. People with their lack of piety never touched my true feelings, but animals with their virginal sense of life awakened all that is good in me. Another instinct led me from animals to abstractions, which roused me even more. It brought me to that second sight in which the living feelings shine in their purity. Very early I found people to be ugly. Animals seemed more beautiful, more pure. But then I discovered in them too so much that was ugly and unfeeling. And instinctively, by an inner compulsion, my presentation became more schematic or more abstract. Finally, the modernist believes in shock, intensity. Henri Magritte writes, my interest lay entirely in provoking an emotional shock. In 1917, Marcel Duchamp was on the organizing committee of an art exhibition in New York. He entered in that exhibition a urinal that was signed, that he had signed with a, a fictitious name, set up on a pedestal, like a typical sculpture. His fellow artists, these were all avant-garde artists, rejected it. This sort of work Duchamp called a ready-made because the artist had nothing to do but select it for display. It was ready-made. A data is exhibition in Cologne in 1920 provided spectators with choppers with which to smash the exhibits. 
which they used. In 1929, Salvador Dali had his first one-man show in Paris. He was drawn in Paris to the Surrealists, a movement begun by André Breton, who in 18, 1928 had said, beauty will be convulsive or it will not be at all. Convulsive beauty was a more intense beauty. Convulsive beauty, wrote Breton, will be veiled erotic, fixed explosive, magic circumstantial, or it will not be. What is our portrait of the modernist? The modernist believes in the new, in individuality and subjectivity, in freedom, in the low, the ugly, and the common, in forms and in shock. But why? Why does he believe in these half dozen things? Why these things? You may find that question very easy to answer. But let me burden you with another question. How would a cynical person answer that question? I think as follows. The modernist believes in the new because he has declared war on tradition, and he has done that because tradition is the thing that seeks to restrict his freedom. The modernist believes in individuality and subjectivity because that is what is left when all restriction is removed. The modernist believes in freedom because freedom allows him to indulge his every base desire. The modernist believes in the low, the ugly, and the common because the tradition believed in the high, the beautiful, and the refined. The modernist believes in forms because the tradition was full of content. What better way to free himself of tradition, to blow tradition off, than by getting rid of content altogether? And the modernist believes in shock because his strongest social feeling is hatred. Hatred of those who would restrain him. His true audience is the traditionalist, whom he longs to offend, and his fellow tradition-hating colleagues, whose admiration he seeks by offending the common enemy. It is, as I said earlier, easy to answer in this way. That explanation comes easily. But we've already spoken of the easy explanation in science. It looks that way, but is it that way? It often happens that the superior scientist is the one who says that despite the apparent explanation, the true explanation is, and who says so, because he has seen something deeper, something that the people who believe in appearances are not paying attention to. And the thing that the superior <coughs> scientist is paying attention to is often something that another great scientist has already pointed out, but that the general scientific community is ignoring because that complicates the picture just too much. In fact, just the other day, John Patrick said, that we prefer simple solutions that are wrong to complex ones that are right. He's talking about science. That's where we are in understanding modernism, which is like other 20th century developments. Here in the human world, the cynic is not paying attention to what a great scientist of human nature told us about man. That great scientist is Thomas Aquinas. The thing that Aquinas said 
that I think we need to pay attention to, though it complicates the picture in perhaps an annoying way, is that hatred is not a motivating factor. Hatred is not hatred. It is love. That is the first law of humanodynamics at issue here. Peter Gay suggests that we find the basic impulse of modernism in, quote, the lure of heresy, the lure of heresy that impelled their action as they confronted conventional sensibilities. But to anyone who has thought for even a moment and in the most rudimentary way about the nature of heresy, this is woefully inadequate. No heretic ever felt himself lured to heresy. If this morning we were holding a meeting here of our heretical sect, we wouldn't call it a meeting of heretics. <laughs> the heretics would be the people we've left behind and turned our backs on. What the heretic is drawn to is always the truth, which he believes he can see. So Gay's suggestion that modernism is some sort of heresy, not entirely useless, but only a half-step to understanding modernism. We want to know what truth modernism thinks it has found. At this level, the term modernism is obviously useless. Yes, the modernist thinks he's found the truth of today, the modern moment, but what is that truth? All of the negative impetus of hatred, Aquinas said, is really love. Augustine says that all emotions are caused by love, hatred also is caused by love. Nothing is hated, save through being contrary to a suitable thing, which is love. Now you may think that Aquinas means the love of something bad, disordered love. What is hatred? Love of. That's one more law of human science that we need. And again, it was supplied by Aquinas. All love is love of goodness. So the idea that we love some disordered, evil thing, he rejects. All love is love of goodness. All human desire is a desire of goodness. And goodness is God's creation. All desire seeks the goodness of God. Now this sounds wrong. What about evil? <coughs> what about sin? But you have to trust that Aquinas was as smart as you could see the problem that you see. Good is the cause of love. The problem with man is that he needs to see all the good at hand. And he focuses typically on one good. But it is a genuine good. In his hate he loves, and it is love of a true good. The dynamic of evil is the omission of a necessary good. That is the very definition of evil, which Aquinas puts like this. Evil is a certain good joined to the privation, the deprivation of another good. So good is present. Good is sought, but it is not all the good that is needed. God calls us to life, to complete life. Aquinas is a great scientist. 
Bad science is the science that is satisfied with what it looks like. And in respect of evil, how does it look? It looks like evil is attractive. It looks like evil is an entity over against good. Two existing principles that both attract between which we are torn but really favoring one. It looks that way, but it isn't that way. It can't be that way, because the evil principle would have to be made by someone. Who has the power to make it? Not Satan. Satan is impotent to make anything, much less any attractive thing. Aquinas says there is no one first principle of evil as there is one first principle of good. All Satan can do is talk. To talk up some goodness so that man ignores some further good and omits some due operation. Evil is ignoring God's goodness by succumbing to goodness. I'm going to say with Aquinas that the attraction of evil is fundamentally the attraction to good. And the evil creeps in because that attraction to good happens to involve simultaneously, not as a part of that attraction, but further to that attraction, there is simultaneously the forgetting of an additional good. That is good science. Now it may be that I've lost you entirely, but I'm going to try to win you back. I'm going to try to show you that Aquinas is right by the evidence of the modernists. For what does the modernist hunger? He hungers after good. A genuine good. Christians today must understand the spirit of the age. They must realize that the protesters and revolutionaries are often fighting against the same evils of society as they themselves. That is a remark by Hans Rockmacher, a Christian who taught art history in Amsterdam and wrote a fascinating book called Modern Art and the Death of a Culture, first published in 1970. That is a remark in the spirit of Aquinas. There's a great deal of value in this book, but at the same time, he doesn't stand by this remark solidly enough. He mentions this in his uh, introduction and then never returns to it. Artists in the age of modernism were in a crisis. A critical review of Gay's book reads, There's something missing in Gay's hymn to the lure of heresy, for all that artistic autonomy had been won. There was an equally powerful sense that something had been lost. For all its erudition, Gay's book can never quite capture the profundity of the modernist moment, its intense disillusionment with the social world, and its concomitant yearning for its reenchantment. Reducing the modernist sensibility to something that often seems no more than a psychological impulse, the lure of heresy, fails to take account of the great historical existential crisis that modernism expresses, which is very good. Modernism arises in a time of crisis, not a crisis for everyone, though. A crisis for some. Imagine that this is 1908. 
So that's where we are. Think for a moment about where we are. In fact, you've been hearing about this crisis all week. In 1908, developments of the Enlightenment have had more than a century, if you go back to the 17th century, more than 200 years in which to play themselves out. Brookmacher puts it like this, by now the world had become a closed box and man was caught in that box. The only content of the box was the reality allowed in by the men of the age of reason. The things that can be understood by rationalist reason and mechanistic science, together with the dream of the new world they had begun to build. What we call scientism was this faith in reason. The world they were building was a fulfilled technocracy, scientific truth put into practice. The profound technological advances of the 19th century give a major boost to the quality of life. It was very hard in the Middle Ages or in the 17th century to be lured away into materialism. The possibility never presented itself. But in the 19th century, this is an option for an entire class of the population in all those centers where the technology is concentrated, cities. The class is called the bourgeoisie, the increasingly affluent city dweller. What happens when this new class makes its mark on taste via what it chooses to purchase, to listen to, to read? What happens is that art exhibitions, for example, fill up with junk. The vapid pop song is born. <laughs> the trashy mass market novel. Okay, bad, but not a crisis. There was no moral crisis of the sort we face today. After all, this was a culture that remained Christian, held to the values of Christendom. But these are people persuaded by the material and moral advances of their day, huge advances in medicine, great charitable accomplishments, the abolition of slavery, etc., persuaded by the advances of their day that the Enlightenment talk about historical human progress was correct and that they themselves represented the apex of that achievement. They did not think they were perfect, but did think that they were the standard and that any deviation from the norm of bourgeois life in London or Paris or New York, any modern town, involved moral catastrophe. The fact that the 19th century bourgeois wears a uniform tells you a lot about the psychology of the age. There was a united moral front. Every wearer of a bustle or a three-piece suit represented the true way. But if you hold yourself up as a norm, as the upholder of the great tradition, and heap scorn on all deviation from the standard you constitute, and at the same time, fall short of the true standard of man at the root of that tradition. And do all this as a united front, with a great sense of moral certitude and su superiority. What is the result? If you do that, you are denying a good, seeking a good, yes, but omitting some good. Unless you are a true follower of Christ, 
you are liberally sowing evil, since that is what the formula for evil is, not all of the requisite good. But you present the society you exemplify as the upholder of the great tradition. The result is that what you stand for appears riddled with hypocrisy, injustice, empty gesture, and looks quite thoroughly rotten. Consider all the talk about prostitutes in 19th century novels. Why? What clientele did these women entertain? The poor? But what does the society preach about sex, fidelity, marriage, etc.? In the 19th century, there was a great loosening of the laces privately at the same time as there was swaggering self-assertion as the pinnacle of Christian moral achievement in accord with the Enlightenment view of human history. Rookmacher says the average man of the 19th century saw himself as standing in the line of development that started with the Enlightenment, but with the principles mellowed, and professing at the same time a Christianity which was also watered down and not held with any great conviction. When Christianity buys into Enlightenment thought, the result is disastrous for Christianity. Of course, we would need to study this a lot more to see exactly why this happened. But at least one obvious lesson stares out at us from the pages of the Old Testament. When the people of Israel get comfortable, they dust off the idols. In fact, to describe these people, Hans Rochmacher turns to Isaiah, who spoke of people whom God had to address as those who draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from me. Rookmacher asks, what was the bourgeois spirit? Here's how he answers that question. Well, you know, we Christians are very nice, decent people. Please don't keep on at us with all this talk about sin in the Bible. We're much more civilized now than people were then. And anyway, it's what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, which really matters. He didn't talk about sin, did he? That's the spirit we want to live in, love and kindness and so on. They never said so, Ruckmacher notes, but what they meant was, please don't remind us of the hard facts of life, don't open our eyes to them, as then it will be impossible for us to live in peace with the establishment of today. The bourgeois were people who looked for certainty and security. With their lips they might have honored God, but in their hearts they looked for a more tangible kind of foundation. They found it in money, in a career, in status, in their moral uprightness, and so morality became moralism. Now if you are a young person in 1900, with what options are you presented? You have the Christian standard of your society on the one hand, and what else? Nothing else. There is no alternative. The obviously hypocritical Christians are not announcing their hypocrisy. Their fellow Christians are not denouncing them upholding a higher standard of, of, of observance. On the surface, there's nothing else. There are no Jeremiah's anywhere. Just a lot of fulminating about standards of decency, the ideals we stand for, etc. The culture allows its rot to fester and hushes up the wrongdoing, at least the wrongdoing it is sensitive to, and the critically minded young know the story. What does the critically minded young person think? He thinks that the tradition 
is dead. The Judeo-Christian episode has come to an end. The tradition begun in the desert or wherever when Abraham wandered around the Fertile Crescent had now run its course. Enlightenment thinkers had suggested as much, but now we can see it with our own eyes. The bankruptcy of the tradition was seemingly apparent. Now, I've been exaggerating here, as I think you appreciate, but it is fitting to do so because the generation of artists that we've been looking at is young. And the receptors of the young magnify a little. The options are always just that much starker than they really are. In 1923, the Viennese writer Robert Musel wrote of the feelings of decline today, which are gray, ashen, and passive, and joyless. He's talking about the tradition, which looks like a corpse. We are at the end of an era. And where are we in 1908, or 1923, or 1935, what is there apart from the tradition? What is it that impresses itself upon the mind of man, thinking about this peculiar moment? Technology. Technology is vastly impressive. Giant ships, bridges, skyscrapers, electricity, instantaneous communication, telegraphy, the telephone, automobiles, aircraft, dams, this is a new age. No one who in these years visited any European capital or the major cities of the United States missed the smell of unforeseen possibility that technology gave off. A ballet by Stravinsky, completed in 1913. What is this sound? of heavy machinery. Why does a composer of ballets write this sound into his music? The Rite of Spring is a ballet that's been called at the start of the modernist movement in music, a ballet about a pre-Christian pagan sacrifice. The Rite of Spring, the season of new life, the sound of technology. We said that modernists believe in the new. That means they have hope of freeing art from the sclerosis of the academies, an artist group writes, Today, artists are divided into two parties, conservatives and those who think that art can survive only on a condition of transforming itself. The conservatives condemn us in the name of the exclusive cult of tradition. They said, don't forget that when modernists are turning against tradition, they're turning against the art of their time, which prides itself on upholding the great tradition. That they do uphold the great tradition is nonsense. They do not perpetuate the tradition. There's a world of difference between the great masters and the artists who paint old-fashioned subject matter to put themselves in the lineage of Titian. I can't take time to justify the claim. Um, but we discussed this last year when we looked at the art of the 19th century academies. And Rokemacher, by the way, has a few brilliant pages on Christian academic art in the 19th century. 
In any case, it wasn't lost on artists that Titian or Rembrandt were not upholding the, the tradition in the sense of looking back at what artists did 300 years before them and doing some version of it. Their art was new. Rembrandt is new. Modern artists are not turning against all past art. They're not against the Titians or Rembrandts. They are against pillaging them in the manner of the academic artist. And you see that in 19th century architecture, too. It's a style called historicism, and what do you see? You see bits and pieces of Baroque and classical uh, architecture and nothing of the 19th century except the bits and pieces of previous architectural styles. Max Beckman writes, I certainly hope we are finished with much of the past, finished with the mindless imitation of visible reality, finished with feeble, archaistic, and empty decoration. I hope we will achieve a transcendental objectivity out of the deep love for nature and humanity, the sort of thing you can see in the art of Grunewald, Bruegel, Cezanne, and Van Gogh. When modern artists turn against tradition, they're against what their day calls traditional. They needed something new. So why this newness? They didn't want a meaningless novelty. But of course, the predicament of the artist is very precarious. When the only compass you have is one that seeks something new, it is inevitable that the novelty it takes you to will often be nothing more than novelty. The predicament of the artist standing in what he considers to be a wasteland is startling. On the list of things to avoid is everything the collapsed tradition said, stood, said it stood for, comfort, beauty, decency, etc. This is all tainted. His only guideline is something else. What else? Where will this come from? How will he find it? Think about the predicament of the artist. We sometimes look at modern art as if the artist were a madman who comes into a china shop and smashes everything beautiful in sight, but the artist does not see a shop of beautiful things and then give himself over to willful destruction. He sees the outward signs of a desolate tradition and is forced by his understanding to contradict it. We said that modernists believe in individuality and subjectivity. I think you can see why. What, we can see the sense of this, the positive sense of believing in this, despite the risks. Imagine a science fiction novel in which emigres from Earth crash on a planet. They discover a fantastic and super advanced civilization, but one that kills them all. They are vivisected, eaten, abused as playthings, etc. The only one allowed to live is a child who grows up among what seemed to him the, the wise creatures of the fantastic planet. But at the end of the novel, as an adult, he realizes the truth about the alien way of life, which beneath the surface is a howling void. Now, how does he live? He's going to have to live by instinct. He's in a terrible predicament, of course, having to live by instinct, but he has only one choice, to trust his gut to follow the inner voice that says, no, there is a better way to live. Because of the emptiness of all ordinary joys, Dali is forced into the strangeness of his interior. Dali is an excellent painter, but he has not found any way to see a basket of bread except as a component of the bourgeois lunch, and he gives up on this. Instead, he is drawn toward what has no tarnish or no associated tedium. 
what are the nutrients here? Not clear at all, but really the motivation is there must be something more. Thrown back on himself, the artist is a hostage to every idiosyncratic misunderstanding. He misjudges nature. No one helps him to understand it. After a century of enlightenment has done its number on nature, no vision of the true character of creation reaches him. Mark writes, very early I found people to be ugly. Animals seemed more beautiful, more pure. You remember where that went. He says, perhaps it is our European point of view that makes the world look poisoned and distorted. This is why I dream of a new Europe. I place great trust in my instinct. In producing by instinct, I often have the feeling that I hold in my pocket something secret, something very happy, at which I must not look. I just put my hand on it once in a while and touch it from the outside. This is hope and despair. What is this thing? He can't see it. He can't take it out. He doesn't know. In bourgeois Christendom, morality became moralism, Brokemacher said. I hope you all have a sense of what that means. In fact, I know you do because you're readers of the New Testament, which is about moralism all the way through. The old covenant of the law kills, says Paul. So God has given us the new covenant, who shows us the way to be righteous, follow him. Moralism, on the other hand, is full of righteous prohibitions that are, in fact, against life. Plucking ears of grain on the Sabbath, avoiding the heathen Samaritan, etc. Supposedly, these strictures advance the good. In fact, they do the opposite. Supposedly, for the sake of our welfare, in fact, they stamp life out. Moralism is against all kinds of good things, and here and there, stamps life out. The artist is conflicted about these things. Sexuality is both attractive and repulsive. Notice the pegged on breasts. The goodness of what we now call sex at the end of that century, on that goodness, see Aquinas, forces artists to contradict the general public maligning of desire, but they rush at it in isolation and it becomes grotesque. It becomes sex. They seek the good that has been wrongly denied, but they are unable to find it. What about the ugly, the disgusting, and the common? Duchamp said that it was an extreme protest against the physical side of painting. It was a metaphysical attitude, a sort of nihilism to which I'm still very sympathetic, a way to get out of a state of mind, to avoid being influenced by one's immediate environment, or by the past, to get away from clichés, to get free. Thanks to the more established art of the century, the academic art that was adulated everywhere, clichés had become a poison. Duchamp called the futurism that you see here an impressionism of the machine, another cliché, and he rejected this too. It is essential to negate what is empty, Dali believed that it was his destiny, quote, to rescue painting from the void of modern art. But what compass does he have? On the other hand, is ugliness really what we think it is? Have we nothing to learn here? Dick said, I'm not that obsessed with making representations of ugliness. Everything I've seen is beautiful. 
Dix paints this little girl as she is. Her skin very transparent, her veins showing through, perhaps she wasn't entirely healthy, but then that is what we see, her unhealth, her human fragility. And is there not a dignity in that fragility? Why the explanation of form? Form is a thing unto itself not tainted by human abuses. It is a new domain into which man has not yet entered. It stands apart, does not offer itself for use and thus abuse. Artists are looking for a place where the soul is at home. The enlightenment technocracy of human assertiveness offered none. Kandinsky writes, there are whole epochs which disavow the spirit, since the eyes of people generally at such times cannot see the spirit. It was so in the 19th century and is on the whole still so today. At the appointed time necessities become right. Right, that is, the creative spirit finds an avenue to the soul. They found this pure place in forms. Matter is here a storeroom, he said, and from it the spirit chooses what is specifically necessary for it, just as the cook would. Picasso said, Cubism is an art dealing primarily with forms, and when a form is realized, it is there to live its own life. A mineral substance having geometric formation is not made so for transitory purposes. It is to remain what it is. The properties of form are discovered. Forms have their own life. The world of form is like the newly opened up microscopic world. Indeed, not just in being a hidden realm with wonders of its own, the microscopic world is a world of form itself. As the human world is not, the world of form is a realm of stunning purity. The poet Guillaume Apollinaire wrote, We are not your enemies. We want to give you a vast and strange domain where mystery in flower spreads out for those who would pluck it. What stands behind the desire to shock, startle, and disorient very often is the desire to connect once again with mystery, to return some of the mystery that materialism had banished. There is a desire to shake people awake to undiscovered correspondences, to break down the notion of a mastered reality. The world of dreams and the psychoanalytic techniques employed by the surrealists was a way for artists themselves to find something that made them feel alive, that made them feel that there was a meaning to be unraveled from things, a deeper significance that was not clear. It was right to reject the meaning of life according to the bourgeois certainty that the Enlightenment had produced. The convulsive beauty surrealism sought was a beauty that shook you. Modern art was an escape from bourgeois gentility to intense feeling because we are not here to go quietly to our deaths, but the instinct that a deracinated person has for the true joy of existence is unreliable, hampered. Artists were not lured into modernism by negatives. They had certainly concluded that the tradition of the West had nothing left to offer. In this, they were partly wrong but they were misled by the fact that those with nothing to offer falsely claimed to represent the Western tradition. 
they were misled, but they were not senseless to give up on the 19th century offerings that they rightly judged to be empty. Having given up on what seemed empty, they were lured by the good. Every item of faith in that list hungers after a genuine good. With the support of a culture thus removed from them, they were right to trust in themselves and in their instincts, though these would mislead them and often produce neurotic art. They were right to seek freedom from the dead hand of established art, freedom to pursue what seemed to them life. Though it be low, ugly, and mundane, it was a source of real feeling. Their faith in the new, as an alternative to what was empty, was an expression of hope. Their faith in a purer world of form was an embrace of purity, a service to the objective reality of a world of beauty. Their belief in shock was very often belief in a rejuvenation of feeling and in the re-enchantment of the world, a belief in intensity of life in the, in the face of a spiritless and grim world. The hunger for the joy that is truly promised to us is good. These are genuine goods. The hope these goods manifest is even a virtue, though it was quite often misplaced in things that could not support hope. Moreover, these goods represent eternal values. The hunger for meaning, joy, purity, freedom from the lie. Those values are embedded in our tradition. And it is wrong of Rochmacher to call modernists destroyers of, quote, the, high, the idea of high art, standing for high human values, and followers of the gospel of absurdity. Wrong to speak of their negation of all values. The absurdity into which many did fall was not the thing in which they had placed their faith, but the void to which their meager and unsupported resources led them. They did not negate all values or see, quote, that now all values, norms, forms, traditions, all that belong to Western culture had <coughs> lost their meaning because in certain ways they themselves affirmed Christian values, wonder, hope, purity, that bourgeois Christians had very broadly turned their backs on. I don't agree with Rockmacher that this art is valuable to us only because it expresses a sickness, because, quote, it reflects and expresses the new age with its machines, its technological possibilities, end quote. It's really very often an antidote to the world of technological possibility against which it reacts. But it is not valuable merely as the record of an age. And it is not valuable as a lesson of sickness, though it does contain a lesson of sickness. The sickness of the individual cut off from a life-giving culture. It tells us about man. It is an enduring testimony in all its confusion and blindness to the human heart that always seeks the good. What an extraordinary mechanism. Surely this is a way in which we are an image of God. The new man, Christ, calls us to more than helpless striving. He calls us to follow him, 
but surely he has pity on the predicament of the artist whose heart enlightenment culture has driven away from the source. Thank you.